Last week, we began to look at the book of Jeremiah. We saw that chapter 1 focused on God calling Jeremiah to be his messenger, his prophet. And God was very careful to assure Jeremiah he had already prepared him for the job. Even before Jeremiah appeared in the womb, God had this work in mind for him. But we saw that Jeremiah was not very reassured by that. He began to make excuses. I can't speak to people. I'm too young. In response to that, God said, Jeremiah, don't worry about your ability. I'm with you. I've put my words in your mouth, and I will do my work through you. Your job is just to stand up and say what I give you to say. If you do that, you won't fail. And God said, yes, people might not like you or your message, but you won't fail. So chapter 1 showed us something about God's relationship with Jeremiah. Now in chapter 2, the focus shifts to God's relationship with the people of Judah. So if you haven't already turned there, you'll find Jeremiah chapter 2 on page 756 in the church Bibles or page 1171 in the large print Bibles. And we'll read all of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? And led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and its rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. 
be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Tapans have cracked your skull. Have not you brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now, why go to Egypt to drink water from the Nile? Why go to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after the bales. See how you have behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey, accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet, when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come, if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravenous lion. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a young woman forget her jewelry? a bride, her wedding ornaments. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. 
On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much, changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave that place with your hands and your head. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. This is God's word. That's emphasized for us right in verse 1. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me. It's a reminder, Jeremiah is not a self-appointed prophet. We saw that in chapter 1. He was not itching to do this job. The job was given to him in spite of his reluctance. And what Jeremiah is going to proclaim is not his own bright ideas or his own perceptive commentary on things. He's going to deliver a divine message. In verse 1, God says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. So we can imagine this young man, a teenager apparently, with no self-confidence, setting out in obedience and trembling and walking the three miles from his hometown, Anathoth, to the big city of Jerusalem. He goes in trepidation. God has already told him people will oppose him because of what he proclaims. But he goes. He goes right into the city. He makes his way through the streets to the busiest part of Jerusalem. And then he raises his voice and he begins to speak to the people. And what he speaks about is a love story. Look at the middle of verse 2. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. And followed me through the wilderness. Through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty. And disaster overtook them. Declares the Lord. Long before Jeremiah's time, Israel had divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. But here, in these verses, God is looking back before that time. Before the time of division, even before the Israelites had settled in this land. He's looking back to their earliest days as a people. The time when he brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. We know it as the Exodus. And God describes that time as the beginning of a marriage. He and the Israelites were newlyweds on their honeymoon. It was wonderful. Their relationship was fresh. It was alive. It was the time of first love. One writer has summed up the picture by saying, redemption is a romance. That's how God presents it many times in Scripture. Redemption is a romance. God had swept in. He'd rescued the Israelites from a harsh, bitter situation. 
and Israel had responded with devotion and love. She followed her new husband happily. She clung to him. And God, for his part, protected his new bride with all the commitment of a new husband. His people had a new special status. They were holy. That doesn't mean they were perfect. It means they were his. They were God's special people, holy to the Lord. They were the apple of his eye. And those who threatened them met with disaster. People like the Amalekites who tried to wipe Israel out in those very early days. God reacted like a good husband would. He went to war and overcame the Amalekites. The marriage is not just a piece of paper. It's a commitment to be deeply devoted to one another. And God and his new bride showed their devotion. And there was great hope that their love for one another would bring blessing to many others as well. That was God's intention. Verse 3 says Israel was the first fruits of his harvest. Long, long before this time, God had told Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Israelites are Abraham's descendants. And it was always God's plan that his marriage to Israel would bring blessing to the whole world. All peoples would be adopted into his family to share in his love. That honeymoon should have been just the beginning. The relationship should have deepened in the years that followed. It should have become more committed. It should have brought blessing to many, many others. But that's not what happened. Because God goes on to describe his bride forsaking first love. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? We know from the Bible that God is sovereign He's all-powerful, but that does not mean God is without feeling. Yes, he is unchangeable, but that does not mean he is cold and unmoved by betrayal. There is pain in his question here. One preacher says, God speaks in the agony of love. He has been an exemplary husband, wholly devoted to his bride. You can see that in verses 6 and 7. He led his bride safely through the barren wilderness. He brought her at last to a new home, a fertile land. That's a reference to the conquest of the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. He followed Moses as the leader of Israel. God says, I loved you faithfully. I provided for you. I brought you to a home, a place where we could live together. But then comes the agonized question. What fault did your ancestors find with me? Verse 5, that they turned from me to follow worthless idols and become worthless themselves. The Bible tells us repeatedly, we become like what we worship. 
If we live for empty things, we become empty ourselves. And God says, why did your ancestors turn from me to worthless, empty things? It's an agonized question. And the answer is, Israel's first love died of neglect. The neglect didn't come from God's side. His devotion never wavered. But notice in verse 6, Israel did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? Down in verse 8, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Israel stopped bothering about God's presence. And the point is not that they should have been asking where God had gone. He hadn't gone anywhere. No, the point is they weren't longing to be in his presence anymore. They were no longer eager to be around him. They neglected the relationship. And along with that neglect came a new attachment to worthless idols. It's a very familiar story. When someone ceases to nurture their marriage, it's just an easy slide into some new relationship outside of their marriage. That's what happened to Israel's relationship with God. And being religious doesn't make people immune from that. Notice again verse 8. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. It's not that these religious people didn't know stuff about God, they had the information in their heads, lots of it, but they had no personal commitment to him, no devotion. Leland Ryken says, the priests of Jeremiah's day were handling the scriptures, studying the Bible and teaching God's word, but they did not know God himself. Their ministry was a dead ritual rather than a living relationship. It is possible to keep doing all the right religious things. Coming to church, teaching Sunday school, helping at Holiday Club, Discoverers 116, playing music, being a deacon, being an elder, being a preacher. It's possible to keep trundling along with all of those things while our first love is dying of neglect because our hearts aren't in it anymore. We no longer have the love and devotion we used to have. And when all we have is lifeless religion, well, it's a short step from there to false religion. In the case of the Israelites, it was Baal and the other false gods of their neighbors. In our case, it might be any number of unbiblical beliefs. If all we have is dead religion, well, one dead religion's as good as another. And so we find when someone drifts away from a living relationship with the God of the Bible, they become happy to pick and mix from a whole load of belief systems just pasting their favorite bits together. 
If all we want is just a few comforting beliefs to fall back on, any beliefs will do. So let's be really careful. Let's examine the condition of our hearts. Is our own relationship with God dying of neglect? Are we relying maybe on a couple of hours in church to keep the romance alive? If you're married, how long would your marriage survive under those kind of conditions? If it did survive, what kind of marriage would it be? First love never lasts. It's always going to go one of two ways. Either it will deepen and develop into a devotion that's richer and more satisfying as the years go by, or it will atrophy and wither into an arrangement that is cold and businesslike. Israel was not supposed to stay the way they were in the desert after the Exodus. Because for all of the freshness and excitement of that new relationship, the Old Testament tells us there were plenty of wobbles, plenty of tantrums in the wilderness. There were challenges in adjusting to the new situation, just like any marriage. But instead of pursuing a deeper commitment and a stronger delight in her new spouse, Israel let it all wither away. So let's learn from them. Let's avoid doing that ourselves. Let's make the adjustments we need to make to deepen our commitment to our God. And all the more so as we see the bitter rewards of forsaking first love. So far, God has been speaking about the ancestors of the current Israelites, but notice verse 9. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Again, indicates that Jeremiah is not the first messenger God has sent. There have been many previous ones, including Joel, Isaiah, Micah, and Nahum. Each new generation has continued the neglect begun by their ancestors. So this applies to the people hearing Jeremiah. It applies to their children. I will bring charges against your children's children should probably tr be translated, I bring charges. It's all in the present. The children and grandchildren are continuing their parents' neglect. And God repeats the terrible state things are in, in the middle of verse 11. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Some of you have been to Israel, you know all about the hot climate there. Water supply has always been a major concern for people living there. And so in ancient times, people would collect 
rainwater by carving cavities into rock, hollowing the rock out. But of course, rock can be porous, water can seep away. So the cavities had to be lined with plaster made from lime. There were early forms of storage tanks, cisterns. And the reward for all that hard work was water. But the downside was it was manky water. It was contaminated with plaster and algae. It looked soapy and it tasted of dirt. It was water. But who in their right mind would choose cistern water over fresh, pure spring water? But God says, that's what my people have done. They've turned away from me, the spring of living water, the one whose love is life-giving. And instead, they've devoted themselves to digging out tanks for manky, polluted water. Meaning, they've chosen to seek life and prosperity by their own effort without me. They've put their hopes in finding life in other places from other sources. And we might think, okay, so they're not getting the very best water, but at least it's water. At least they can get by. No, they can't. Look again at verse 13. These cisterns they've dug for themselves cannot hold water. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're designed for, but they fail. Historians tell us, as ingenious as those man-made cisterns were in the ancient world, they were notorious for cracking and losing their water. So those who came to draw water, expecting some reward for all of the effort they'd gone to, carving out the rock, lining it with plaster, waiting patiently, they would come in hope and they would find only disappointment. There was no water. Could there be any better picture of the bitter rewards of seeking satisfaction away from God? At best, at very best, the things we hope in give us a weak, stale imitation of what God provides. But very often it's even worse. When we turn to those things, they give us nothing at all. They're empty. There's an old hymn that says, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Maybe you profess to be a Christian. Maybe you've never made that commitment. Either way, the value of this picture is the same for all of us. When we seek life and fulfillment away from God, the God who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, when we seek our life and fulfillment away from Him, we either get a sour imitation of what He can give, or we get nothing at all. Either way, we end up bitterly disappointed. And in the end, we will have nothing at all. Because even the best of those pale imitations cannot bring us out the other side of death. 
Don't make the mistake that's described here. God's word is here to warn us. Seek him, pursue him. Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He said to the woman at the well in John 4, I'll give you living water, water that wells up to eternal life. Life now and life forever. Jesus can bring us out the other side of death. Don't end up wailing with regret someday because you ignored God's word to you. Because you trusted in broken cisterns instead of him. In the rest of our passage, God gives us some specifics about this. He gives details of the bitter rewards that come from forsaking his love. There are three of them described here. The first is slavery. Verse 14, is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Up to this point, Israel has been used to refer to all the Israelites, the undivided nation that came out of Egypt long ago. But we've seen that by this stage in history, the nation is now divided in two. And here Judah, the southern part Jeremiah is speaking to, Judah is asked to consider what has already happened to the northern kingdom. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Slavery should have been a thing of the past for them. But by turning from God, they've ended up back in slavery. Roughly 115 years before this, the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians and the northern Israelites were carried off into exile in Assyria. And here in verse 15, the Assyrians are described as lions that have laid waste the land. That's what's happened in the north and God says now to the southern kingdom of Judah, learn from the bitter rewards your northern brothers and sisters, God. In verses 16 to 18, God says, don't think you can go drinking from the cisterns of other nations. Don't look to them as your saviors. They will prove to be broken cisterns as well. Politics is a broken cistern. Don't we know that very well at the moment? If we think about our current Brexit mess, no doubt some of the possible outcomes are better than others, so we should be praying that our politicians will make good and wise decisions, that they'll do what's best, we should. But we also need to see that neither staying in the European Union or partially uncoupling from the European Union or sticking two fingers up to the European Union None of those things is going to lead us to the living water we need. If we put our hope in politics, we will find to our bitter disappointment that politics is a broken cistern. Israel had learned that lesson the hard way. And God says to them in verse 19, 
your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. When we forsake the true lover of our souls, it's first of all a sin against our promise of commitment to him. And it is unimaginably bitter for us. We find ourselves enslaved to the things we look to for help and fulfillment. Another bitter reward of forsaking our first love is foolishness. In his letter to the Romans, Paul speaks about those who turn away from God. He says, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. That could sum up the point of these verses. Verse 20 says, long ago you tore off your yoke. You broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. In the Bible, to be a servant of the Lord is the highest calling there is. It's a life of dignity. But the Israelites wanted to be free from his authority. So they ran from the dignity and honor of his service right into the indignity and the degradation of idol worship. As if that was better somehow. Verse 20 describes their behavior as prostitution. That's what they were doing in a spiritual sense, leaving their husband for other lovers. But it also refers literally to the sexual rituals involved in false worship. People did prostitute themselves at the pagan shrines. How foolish to think a life of being used and abused sexually is better than a life of serving God. And how foolish to think you can scrub off the guilt that comes with that kind of life. Verse 22, although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. And when you are guilty and you feel that guilt, How foolish then to go from trying to get rid of it to denying it. Verse 23, how can you say, I am not defiled, I have not run after the Baals. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. This is confusion. A person who prostitutes themselves to false gods, then tries to wash off their guilt, then denies they're guilty, I have not run after the Baals. And then says, anyway, I can't help it. I must go after them. 
Israel doesn't know whether she's coming or going. She doesn't know whether she's up or down. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And don't we see that all around us? I spoke to a university professor once who laughed at the silliness of people who believed Jesus was God's son. How ridiculous. But when I asked what he believed, he went into detail about how the answer to our problems is to get ourselves in line with the vibrations of the universe. He said that with a straight face. I didn't know how to respond to him. That's sensible, and believing in Jesus is ridiculous. When people reject the God of the Bible and his son Jesus, they will end up clinging to all sorts of weird and contradictory beliefs. Look at verse 26. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets. They say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have times. It's silly enough to claim that a wooden statue is your father and a stone statue is your mother. That's silly enough, but apparently there's a whole other level of foolishness going on here. Commentators tell us wooden statues were used to represent the female god Asherah. And stone statues represented the male god, Baal. So look at verse 27 again with that in mind. The claim is, my mother Asherah fathered me and my father Baal birthed me. These people have turned their back on God and descended into a life of foolish confusion. We don't have to look far in our own society to see similar silliness, similar confusion about gender and sexuality. And I do not intend for a moment to belittle the pain these kind of issues cause in people's lives. The genuine struggles some men and women have in these areas. But above and beyond that, isn't so much of what is said and pontificated about today just the foolishness that comes from turning our backs on God. It would be funny if it didn't do so much damage to tell already confused young people they can remake themselves into whatever gender they want. as if that will solve their depression and their insecurity. Our foolishness about these things is destructive. And yet so often we're quick to blame God 
for the results of our own sin and foolishness. Look at verse 29. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravenous lion. Here God is referring to the genuine prophets. The ones who brought God's word and were persecuted for it. He goes on, verse 31. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we're free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a young woman forget her jewelry? A bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though you did not catch them breaking in. In other words, you had no just reason to punish them. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much, changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave that place with your hands in your head. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. To go about with your hands in your head is a sign of shame. Bitter rewards. In this section, God points out these people who have turned from God have fallen in the end into stubborn unbelief. They've not stopped seeking love and fulfillment, but they've forgotten how to seek it from the one who can truly provide it. They've gone from trying to wash off their guilt to a settled denial of their guilt. And yet, not only are they guilty of sin against God, their clothes are stained with the innocent blood of others. And seeking fulfillment for themselves, they have treated others unjustly and violently. We are a long, long way from the first love of verses 2 and 3. The devoted bride has ended up abused by her lovers and has become an abuser herself. Instead of being a blessing to others, she's dished out unjust suffering to others. And she's become hardened and stubborn in her unbelief. All because she neglected her relationship with the only one who truly loved her. Last Sunday evening, Alan preached a very helpful sermon from the beginning of Hebrews, and he drew our attention to the challenge of Hebrews chapter 2, which says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away, for how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So let's ask ourselves, 
is our own relationship with our Savior dying of neglect. When we think back to the early days of our faith in Christ, do we have to admit that our devotion and love has faded? Have we begun to rely on broken cisterns instead of the spring of living water? If we can sense that in ourselves, if we can see evidence of it, let's take that drift seriously. If we do nothing, it will lead us to slavery, to foolishness, and in the end, to stubborn unbelief. Let's hear God's word and come back to Jesus. Let's come to him for living water that wells up to eternal life. We'll take a moment to be quiet as we respond individually to this. We can ask ourselves in God's presence, are there idols we need to forsake? Are there broken cisterns we need to stop depending on? Let's just do that personally and quietly where we sit. Now let's respond together as we sing a song that is full of hope. It assures us we can come back no matter how far we might have wandered. We can come back. Today your mercy calls us.